Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. The context of the passage in Matthew chapter 5 is that there are six times in which Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have said it, you have heard it said, but I tell you, right? And this is the third, so we're approaching the halfway point of these six teachings of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, approaching the middle of them now, and it's the shortest, but certainly not least when it comes to controversy or difficulty to understand the topic of divorce. So Matthew chapter 5, I'm going to read it. And then we're going to consider what it has to say a few things this morning. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 31. This is the word of God. Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's it. That's the passage. Yes, it is a short text. Two verses. Yet this does not transfer to meaning that it is a shorter sermon. <laughs> there's a lot to cover here. And so, uh, in, in fact, I would actually say there's so much to cover here. And I, I want to make sure that... Um, you know everything that we go through, so if there's anything that you're like, is, is this what he said? Is this not what he said? Um, I encourage you, go back to our podcast, to our YouTube channel. We, we have all of these sermons posted, and today is no exception, okay? And so um, feel free to re-listen online later on to just maybe catch something um, if you wanted to listen to it a second time. But as I preach this passage today, as we look at it, I am greatly sensitive to two realities. The first is the various life experiences that I know are or may be represented in this room. I'm very sensitive to that reality. You may have grown up with divorced parents. You may currently have divorced parents. Maybe your parents are divorced or your kids are divorced. You might know and love somebody that is, and that leads to a lot of trauma, a lot of pain, maybe anger when it comes to this topic you might be feeling. Or maybe it's yourself that you have went through a divorce. Or maybe you're contemplating and wrestling through that reality or possibility right now. I know all of those could be represented in this room right now. And if it's you yourself working through that, I know with that comes a lot of emotions. Possibly if you've already done it, working through a lot of regret. Maybe if somebody's done it to you, working through hurt, working through shame. There's a lot of feelings that you might be feeling associated with this topic. And so I'm sensitive to that today as we talk about it and consider God's word on it. But the second thing I'm also sensitive to is the abundant clarity of God's word on this issue. 
Those are two sides to one coin, sensitive to the hearer and where you might be at in hearing this, but then also sensitive to God's abundantly clear word on this topic. Our culture has drifted far from God in how we disrespect the sanctity of marriage and hold it very loosely, if at all, in our culture. And I'm held accountable to God to speak boldly what God says definitively about leaving one's first love or the wife of one's youth. God's word says a lot about it, and we must consider them. And so let's dive in, looking at this. And I think to start, we really have to know some background context leading into these verses that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. We have to back up a little bit and see the picture and really see the people that he's talking to and their framework going into what he's saying. First, we need to be clear that divorce is never God's desire. It's never God's desire. Not a single divorce that has ever occurred in human history displays a perfect reality. It doesn't. Every single divorce that has ever taken place displays fallen creatures and a fallen world. It is not God's original or ideal creation. It is, in fact, the reality and the effect of the fall. And yet, knowing that, that it's not God's desire or ideal, we also must consider that God made a law in the Old Testament as provision for those who go through divorce. He did. He did. So why? If he hates it, if he hates divorce, why would he create a law that works within the framework of or the assumption that divorce is going to take place? If he hates it, why is he going to work with it? We see that in the text. Well, I would say two things. Firstly, he creates a law in the Old Testament dealing with divorce as a protection to women. He does it as a protection to women. In a society that is not gender equal. Look at Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 3 with me. It says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and she becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife. It goes on to say later in verse 4 that she shouldn't go to that first man that she originally married. Consider this, though. I want you to think about this law. This law is not telling anyone to divorce anyone. It's not commanding that anyone should leave anyone. It's making a protective clause for women who didn't have the rights of men to have protection in such a society. That the man ought to give a certificate of divorce. It's protection. Women couldn't work, and so they needed a certificate to show future men that she wasn't unfaithful, she wasn't unclean. Without that, she would be destitute without a man that could work, provide for her. 
And so thus, this law stipulates that she will have a certificate if there is a divorce that occurs. This is protection for women. But secondly, I think it's also God's concession to the reality of our fallen world. He's not blind to the reality of our fallen world. And he works within the brokenness that he knows takes place. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus says exactly this. We don't have to speculate. He says that God permitted divorce, didn't command it. He permitted it only because we are sinful people and do sinful things. Matthew chapter 19, they said to him, talking about the Pharisees, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? First of all, he didn't command it, but it was assumed and implied in, in Deuteronomy 24, the passage we just read. But he said, why did he command that a certificate of divorce be sent, given to her when he sends her away? And Jesus said to him, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. This is a concession to the reality of our fallen world. This is God's law on divorce. It's not his desire, but he made a law given its existence. It's inevitable existence. It's going to happen in this fallen world, sadly. So if I could summarize a little bit of the context going into Matthew chapter 5, I would say God's law, and we need to know this, God's law never demands, it never celebrates divorce, it exists because a broken world exists. I guess another way of saying it that might be more memorable for you is firstly, God's law on divorce gives provision for the victim, not permission for the unfaithful. Why would God make a, God make a law in the Old Testament about divorce? He's making a provision for the victim. He is not giving permission for those who want to be unfaithful. This isn't a ticket to go do what you want. It's a provision for the victim, not a permission for the unfaithful. Also, God's law on divorce regulates a sad reality. It does not recommend that sad reality. It regulates how it would happen if it happens, but it does not recommend that it should happen. This is the framework going into Matthew chapter 5. And so knowing this, we can now begin to walk through the text a little bit and consider what it says for us this morning. Firstly, Jesus cites Deuteronomy 24 in verse 31, doesn't he? If you go to verse 31, he's talking about Deuteronomy 24, what we've already read. It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 3 that we just read. And again, Jesus is not abolishing this. He's not getting rid of this or rejecting this. Jesus would still stand with the heart behind Deuteronomy 24 that if divorce happens, she should, at the very least, be protected and not left destitute. All right, so Jesus wouldn't reject the heart behind Deuteronomy 24. But he states it. And then he says something about divorce that's always been true, but his, his hearers 
probably hadn't thought about before. It's always been true. This is what he goes on to say. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, he makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This has always been true. It's not new ethics in the New Testament. Jesus only highlights what has always been true and that they probably hadn't thought about before. Now, in verse 32, there's a lot to unpack. And so let me just maybe put three headers that we can walk through um, in our time together. Firstly, I want you to consider the standard that he implies. The standard. Secondly, the exception he gives. The exception he gives. And then thirdly, the effect it has. The standard, the exception, and then lastly, the effect that an unbiblical divorce would have. Let's consider the standard. That would be like the rule of thumb that he implies. Doesn't outright say it, but he implies that that marital faithfulness is the standard that ought to be sought for. Marital faithfulness. Right? Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, he makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries her, they commit adultery. What's the standard that should be worked towards? Marital faithfulness. That's the standard. That's the goal. And so we know that divorce is either caused by some sin, or it is a sin itself, right? It's very possible that both are the case. It's caused by a sin, and yet still it was a sin to do it. Divorce is not the ideal. Divorce is not the standard. Jesus' stance is that marital faithfulness, holiness unto one another until death is God's good and original plan, not divorce. Now, in a fallen world, that is really hard to grasp, right? That Jesus would call us to marital faithfulness, knowing there's a lot probably wrong in the marriage. Unless you have a perfect marriage. There's issues, and Jesus knows that. And yet he says marital faithfulness should be strived for. When he says that marital faithfulness is the standard... He is well aware of two things. Firstly, he's well aware that marital faithfulness is really hard work. If you think it's just a breeze, a walk in the park, you're lying. To be committed in every regard, not just sexually, to be without sin in your view and in your actions toward your spouse every day of the week. That's not the case for any of us. Though Jesus was never married to a woman, he has long suffered his commitment to his people for thousands of years. Jesus himself never married in the way that you and I would marry an individual, but in the Bible he talks about the church, you and I, as his bride, and he has long suffered, long suffered his commitment to us 
for thousands of years, enduring with great patience the hardship that is his commitment to us. So he sympathizes with all the legitimate struggles that comes with your marriage. Please hear that. I just want you to hear that. Jesus, your Savior, sympathizes with the hardships that come with marriage. All the in-law struggles, anyone? Okay, well, us neither. (laughs) All the in-law struggles, all the arguments about children and parenting, parenting tactics, all the differing dreams that you might have, goals, priorities that might be completely opposed to one another, how you spend your money, sexual disconnect, financial stresses, or just plain old sin and sin habits that you and your spouse bring into the marriage. He sympathizes. He sympathizes. He knows what it's like to be at odds with the one he's in covenant with. Read the Old Testament. He is often at odds with his chosen people and yet is faithful to them and does not give up on them. He knows what it's like to be at odds with the one that he is in covenant with and still trying to live life with them. And so if you feel like, well, God's perfect, he just doesn't know what my broken marriage looks like, please hear me. He knows what it's like to have a difficult bride. We are that difficult bride. And yet, though he knows how hard it is and how difficult marriage is, he also knows that remaining committed is worth it. It's worth it. And isn't this the gospel? Isn't this the gospel message that God sees his regularly unfaithful bride, you and I, every day being unfaithful to him, and yet he sees that and he still sees value in forgiving and remaining with us. This is the good news of the gospel that you and I would have such a faithful God that in all of our sin and all of our waywardness, he sees it at face value. He's not blind to it. He sees it and he still sees it as worth it to continue his love and his faithfulness for you that he would even come down and die on a cross, that he would spend eternity with you and deal with that sin that he's seeing. Our God loves us, and he is faithful. And so the challenge there is that we should be like him, shouldn't we? That means we shouldn't look for reasons to divorce, but rather look at all the reasons not to. I don't know if you're contemplating or you've considered, you've toyed with the concept of divorce. Can I just challenge you to look at the person of Jesus Christ, to try to mirror his actions, and in doing that, don't look for reasons to divorce. Look at all the reasons not to, and I promise you, no matter how broken your marriage might be, there are reasons not to divorce. There always are. 
if nothing else, this shows the gospel to so many people. It shows the gospel to your spouse, who you're to show forgiveness to and love and commitment. It shows the gospel to the world. It shows the gospel to your children who are watching mommy and daddy. It shows the gospel to them that you serve a God who forgives and loves and that has transformed you to do the same. It shows the gospel to your kids and it shows the gospel to yourself. Do you know that? That your actions and my actions can actually teach ourselves the gospel every day. That as we live out what the gospel calls us to, it actually reminds us of the good news that we're saved by. Jesus forgives and if he stays only by his spirit in us, we can too. We can too. So this is the standard, the rule of thumb that he implies, marital faithfulness. The second thing, though, that we have to really work through in this verse is the exception. The exception that he gives. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. It seems to be an exception that if that happens, then divorce doesn't cause adultery. Well, we have two reasonable interpretations of this that I want us to consider very quickly. The first the, and the most common interpretation of this would be as the verse appears. As you would read it and as you would first understand in reading the passage that adultery is the, an instance when the obligation to remain married is void and no longer pressed upon you. That if sexual immorality physical cheating were to take place in the marriage, then the obligation to faithfulness is no longer pressed upon you. I think this is a reasonable biblical interpretation, but even in this case, please hear me, Jesus never said you should. He never said that it should happen or that it's inevitable that it would happen. Please see in verse 32, it doesn't say that marriages who have undergone, uh, underwent sexual immorality have no chance of surviving. It doesn't say that. Divorce is not inevitable because of sexual immorality. What a gospel testimony, again, if you were to remain married even with such an offense. Marriage after unfaithfulness displays the painful yet glorious story of the gospel. The pain that sin brings and yet the redemption that we can find on the other side of it. This is the story of the gospel that can be shown in a marriage that remains after unfaithfulness. So this is the first interpretation that makes sense. The second, less common, I think, interpretation of this passage, but I think just as biblical or faithful to the text would be that this clause does not permit marital divorce but only divorce when betrothed. Let me say that again. I think it's very reasonable to see this text as not permission to divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality but rather permission to divorce from a betrothal, not marriage. If sexual immorality takes place. 
Now, I have to probably define what betrothal means because <laughs> we don't have that right now. Uh, we have engagements, but that's not the same as a betrothal at Jesus' time. A betrothal in Jesus' context was a covenant before the marriage covenant. It was a one-year commitment to one another, much more serious than our engagement period. So how might this be what Jesus is talking about instead of marital divorce? Well, this allowance for divorce that we see here in verse 32 on the grounds of sexual immorality is only found in one book of the Bible. Can you guess which book? You're looking at it. Matthew. This exception clause that would allow divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality is only allowed in the book of Matthew. Not Mark, not Luke, not John. Also, Matthew is the only book to mention Mary and Joseph's scandal. You know what I'm talking about when I talk about Mary and Joseph's scandal? That they were betrothed, not married yet, but betrothed to be married. Joseph suspected adultery. She was pregnant. So he suspected adultery, and then he sought to separate from her quietly during the betrothal period. Now, what Joseph planned to do, that separation from her in this betrothal period, is exactly the same word that Jesus uses here in this verse. So let's go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. It says, when her husband, now they were already calling each other husband and wife because it's way more serious than engagement time that we have today, right? So her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Please remember, they are not married yet. They are betrothed. A covenant before the marriage covenant. And he sought to divorce her quietly. And then if you just put right next to that, our current passage, Matthew 5.32, everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality. Well, that's what Joseph would have been working with. Would be sexual immorality. So, If Matthew is the only book that gives this exception clause, and if Matthew is the only book that deals with Mary and Joseph's scandal of sexual immorality in the betrothal period, it's possible, in fact, I would say likely, that Matthew had, when he was writing this, Joseph and Mary's betrothal in mind. Not their marriage, their betrothal in mind when he wrote this. That anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. Now that your head's spinning, and you're like, what in the world are you talking about right now? What do we do from here? What do we do with this? Well, firstly, let me say there are godly people supporting both of these two opposing interpretations. Godly people on both sides of the argument that want to be faithful to the text. And though there is gray area on if adultery is really allowing a divorce in marriage, the gray area, it is black and white on if other reasons would permit divorce. It's crystal clear. It's crystal clear that incarceration would not allow for divorce or be a good reason for divorce. It's crystal clear that being unequally yoked is not a justifiable reason to be divorced. It's crystal clear 
financial fault on one party's end would justify the other one to divorce them. Jesus gives no room for that. It's crystal clear. Parenting incompatibilities, even emotional neglect, these things are very real. They devastate marriages. And yet, they do not give ground for divorce. I think a really big one is physical abuse. Physical abuse. And on that, I would say that this is detestable, horrific in the sight of God. It should not be endured. So if you're going through that, you should not have to endure that. You should tell, tell the church, tell other people, separate so that you're safe. All of those are absolutely true. But it, the Bible doesn't revoke your covenant with them on that ground. There is no biblical justification for divorce on the grounds of physical abuse. There isn't. No separation should take place for your safety, and that person should be dealt with criminally. But it seems to be that the Bible would still call us to be faithful in our covenant with such a broken person. Another really big one, I think, that's popular in our day and age today is just making the decision together, being in agreement about the divorce. Right? Have you ever heard of that? Maybe that was your story or someone you know's story, that it was a mutual decision, that people change, we change, we're different. We, we, we loved each other at that time, but we don't really now. We're actually better friends than we are spouses. We just part ways, and it's better that way. We're better co-parents than we are a couple. There's less fighting. The kids are happier. You ever heard this before? Please hear the Bible's response that marriage is a three-way covenant, and even if two people agree that divorce should happen, the third does not. God does not agree that that divorce, that that marriage should be severed because you're both happy with it. God doesn't sign off on that. And so with all these popular, unbiblical reasons for divorce, we have to remember, firstly, that our experiences do not trump God's clear word, right? Our experiences, our emotions do not trump God's clear word. He knew all of these things that you and I go through in our marriage when he didn't include that in the exception clause in Matthew chapter 5. He didn't include it, though he knew about it. God's word is clear on his command for marital faithfulness. 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11 say this, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So this is the exception clause. First, the standard that we looked at. Secondly, the exception that he gives. Thirdly, I want to go back to verse 32 briefly and consider the effect. Everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual immorality makes her commit Adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is, what is Jesus saying here? 
Well, if someone has a divorce that is not supported by the Bible, they're not truly separated in God's eyes. The covenant stands. Therefore, if the covenant stands, any romantic relationship that would follow is cheating. Even if you've been separated for 15 years, God's covenants do not have an expiration date. So entering a second marriage, if the first marriage was severed on unbiblical grounds, entering that second marriage would be sin. But so would dating. But that's an emotional affair. You have a spouse still. On this, I just want to say one quick word to those who have remarried after a sinful divorce. I just want to speak to that briefly, to the remarried people after a sinful divorce. Please hear this. You should grieve, not celebrate your divorce. Grieve that it happened. Don't celebrate it. Don't celebrate it. Even if you're in a great marriage now since the divorce, that just shows that God brings good out of our evil, right? I mean, a similar situation would be um, the blessing and the joys of having a child, right? That is worth celebrating and worth being excited about, but that doesn't mean that the sex outside of marriage to have that baby is any less a sin, Grieve the sin, but celebrate that God brings good out of our sin. So it is with sinful divorces that might have led to a happy marriage later. We ought to celebrate the grace of God in our lives now while repenting over and grieving all the sins that led up to it. So, this is a difficult passage. A lot that could still be said on it, but suffice it to say, if I could summarize this, marriage is a very big deal to God. Therefore, divorce is just as big a deal to Him. No matter what your relationship is with this topic, maybe you're like, Isaac, I don't know anyone that's been divorced. I'm happily married. None of this is applied to me. Can I speak to everyone? May you still look to Christ today. May we all look to Christ today. Look to his faithfulness to his bride, to his church. And may we all be challenged by that faithfulness. He is a faithful spouse. May may we mirror his grace and his forgiveness, his charity and his kindness and his gentleness and his mercy in whatever relationships you have. Look to the faithfulness of Christ. And mirror it. Look to his forgiveness. Look to his forgiveness. No matter what you've done, there is full forgiveness and acceptance from the cross. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? If you're carrying shame, if you're carrying guilt, hear that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So may we all walk in the love and the forgiveness of our Savior, no matter what baggage we bring to the relationship. Let's pray.
Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com. 